On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river bank, where we thought there might be a place for prayer. We sat down and began to talk with the women who had gathered. One of those women was Lydia, a Gentile god worshiper in the city of Thyatira, a dealer in purple cloth. As she listened, the Lord enabled her to embrace Paul's message. Once she and her household were baptized, she urged, now that you have decided that I am a believer in the Lord, come and stay in my house. And she persuaded us. On the day when we were on the way to the place for prayer, we met a slave woman. She had a spirit that enabled her to predict the future. She made a lot of money for her for her owners through fortune telling. She began following Paul and us shouting, these people are servants of the most high God. They are proclaiming a way of salvation to you. She did this for many days. This annoyed Paul so much that he finally turned and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to leave her. It left her at that very moment. Her owners realized that their hope for making money was gone. They grabbed Paul and Silas and dragged them before the officials in the city center. When her owners approached the legal authorities, they said, these people are causing an uproar in our city. There are Jews who promote customs that we Romans can't accept or practice. The crowd joined in the, atta in the attacks against Paul and Silas, so the authorities ordered that they be stripped of their clothes and beaten with a rod. When Paul and Silas had been severely beaten, the authorities threw them into prison and ordered the jailers to secure them with great care. When he, received, when he received these instructions, he threw them into the innermost cell and secured their feet in stocks. Around midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. All at once, there was such a violent earthquake that it shook the prison's foundations. The doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. When the jailer awoke and saw the, saw the doors of the prison, the open doors of the prison, he thought the prisoners had escaped. So he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul shouted loudly, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for some lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He led them outside and asked, honorable masters, what must I do to be rescued? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your entire household. They spoke the Lord's word to him and everyone else in his house. Right then, in the middle of the night, the jailer welcomed them and washed their wounds. He and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. He brought them into his home and gave them a meal. He was overjoyed because he and everyone in his household had come to believe in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Carolina. So most of y'all got to participate in some of the map making earlier in the worship gathering. If you didn't, um, you'll get a chance during our potluck. I hope this stands as kind of a visual aid for the way that God is gathering our church community in from all these points, but also sending us out, and this happens kind of almost like breathing in and out each week. Each gold star represents not just some random scatter plot, but places of deep calling, 
Right. Very intricate personality and resources in each one of those spots. A history of really distinct pain in an almost infinite network of existing relationships and also immense hope, every single one of those stars. Each star represents not only this to you or for you, but like branches upon branches of these things and the people that are immediately surrounding you. I remember our first intern here a few years ago. You'll have to bear with me. Every year or every time when we come around to our anniversary time, which is about next week is the first time we met four years ago as a church, and we'll celebrate more in October. I get really nostalgic. So our first intern, Joey Morningstar, and some of you guys know Joey. He was our original student intern, and he loved to explore how mushrooms grow. And if you walked by Joey's house, almost inevitably, there would be a bunch of foraged mushrooms on the rail of his house, and some, and he had a system, because there was, like, in, normally in the research mode of, like, what was healthful to eat, what might not be super help, healthful, what was toxic, you know? And so it was, it was never a threat that his mushrooms would be stolen, because no one knew his code for all that. But he was always stopping and picking mushrooms. And he taught me, he would talk about this, and he, he would teach me these things he would pick up about how mushrooms don't have roots, because of course they're not plants, they have mycelium. And the mycelia are like a little more sneaky and subtle than roots, but they're kind of, they serve a similar purpose. They, when it rains and you see a single mushroom pop up or a clump of mushrooms or like a fairy ring of mushrooms, and they pop up all of a sudden and it's kind of magical and mushrooms are so weird and mysterious. It, it, it's this hidden network of mycelia that is ranging all over the place that's been growing and gathering nutrients for some time. That mushroom is, is just the fruit of that. It's deeply connected and it's deeply affected by everything in its proximity. Our Ecclesia Network friends uh, from Cincinnati University Christian Church and Mandy Smith, they kind of share um, some of our joys and our, our uh, uh, sadness as a community um, proximate church that welcomes and sends people pretty regularly. And uh, it makes for a really exciting but also really unstable community. And even in the last couple months, we've, if you remember, we've had Sundays where we all gathered around and we we sent the Pendricks, who are part of our core team. Um, e even a couple families uh, who have been really key to the life of Oak Church, but in much shorter durations, like the Manchesters or the Lads. Uh, a few weeks ago, we sent Joe Longarino to Germany for a year. We expect to get him back on that deposit. Um, but you can see kind of the difficulty when our neighborhood, uh, we're a church concerned with neighboring and we're locally focused, but then our neighborhood starts to expand so broadly as we send people out that we can hardly map it any longer. So sometimes it's good to map this, to map these networks and try to trace some of the ways our roots or our mycelia uh, interweave and, and, and are tangled together. Um, because I think if we don't, we run the risk of doing what uh, Reynolds Chapman said a couple weeks ago, we run the risk of thinking that somehow if our flourishing is not here, that it's somewhere else. That it's not here, but our flourishing is somewhere else. So our friends from UCC, um, Pastor Mandy Smith, recounted how they tried to interrupt this temptation. 
of sending people out, of having an unmappable community by mapping their community. They, they wanted to interrupt this uh, by replacing, not replacing, but re-placing these friendships in really specific and particular ways. Um, ways that stave off like cynicism or romanticism. And Mandy says, it's easy for us to see what our church or neighborhood or city could be. To see all the things it's not and to dream of other places. But what if our sense of what it could be is not an invitation to leave and find that somewhere else? What if it's an invitation to shape our place? Anyone can complain about what is or pick up and move to a fully formed place, but it takes imagination and creativity and patience to be the ones who start making something new. It'll be hard and we'll need God and each other, but that's okay, that's why we have the church. That's really wise words from Pastor Mandy. After mapping these places of communion and commonality and praying for imagination and creativity and patience, her church community at University Christian Church uh, had a party and they ate cake together, and this is what their cake looked like. They said, we are here. They, they had a we're not going away party. And so as we map these places, as we sign up for mustard seed groups and we anticipate the ways that God's going to weave together and, and tangle together our lives, uh, we, we, we boldly proclaim that we're still here, and, and we actually put a uh, map dot on where that here is. So we heard in our passage in... Acts 16 today, that Paul is on the move, and there's definitely map points, map dots for this movement. You can also map his progress on this second missionary journey, which scholars date around the 30s, the late 30s, and that's right, that's the same decade that Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried, but also rose again. It's the same decade that the former Paul was already out there planting churches in these little neighborhoods around the Mediterranean. So we're told of, at the top of this fast-paced chapter 16 that Carolina read from later that Paul moved from Derby to Lystra. Yeah, from there to there. That's great. We're so high-tech, right? And there's this great description in here of Timothy's family, like every place he goes, he details a person there in a relationship. He talks about Timothy being young and, and Timothy's mom and his grandma and kind of the way he came to faith and also the gymnastics they had to go through to get the young Timothy to be a suitable traveling partner in the gospel for him. And then they went to uh, Phrygia and Galatia, which are regions, yeah, through Asia, but they did not know, they did not go to Mycenae because the Spirit of God would not allow them to enter. Then they went down to Troas, um, and Paul had this vision of a Macedonian man begging them to come to Macedonia to help him. And then they sailed towards Neapolis and Philippi, the lead city in that, in that area of Macedonia. So that's where we're at. We're in Philippi. You can map this stuff. This is not just some idea. Our, our, our scriptures and Acts tells a story that has to do with maps and in locatable places. And the, so they stayed in this place in Philippi for several days. So you start to see the shape of Paul's journey, and it's here in Philippi that our story picks up. And Philippi is kind of a strange place. 
It's a, it's a little Rome of sorts. Like they had a military victory there and they founded it as a city that basically had all the customs of Rome. It was, it, it was like trying to be like Rome, but not so big. Um, it, was, it had all the desires of Rome. Um, Paul and his companions, I think, kind of notice this. Maybe in the way that when we get people that move here from other places, they say, oh, Durham is new to me, but I kind of recognize it. It's a little like Brooklyn or Portland or name your spot, Richmond or something, right? Um, and upon arrival, he, he purposes to find a prayer meeting. Maybe, maybe a, this is a little bit of a strange scene for Paul to s- seek out. You might expect him to kind of hang with that temple home crowd that we talked about last week, those familiar Jews that he could kind of persuade that Jesus was the fulfillment of their expectation. But instead, he went for a meeting of pagan women outside the city gates, and he found a new friend named Lydia. What ensued became so deeply important for Paul's future both as an apostle of the good news and personally, Paul made a friend. You see, this was one of Paul's main methods of mission. Like We focus often on his, his and Peter's speeches that they have and these profound statements that kind of clarify and elucidate what God's done in Christ by the Spirit. But one of Paul's main strategy for mission was to make friends. So that might help us consider what it means to neighbor in the good news in the place that God has put us. Paul traveled around the Mediterranean, listening to the Holy Spirit, and seeking out and cultivating what one Paul scholar calls strange friendships. Not just normal friendships, but strange friendships. This is not to say that Lydia is strange or that Paul is strange or one of them is and isn't strange. It's to say that their connection is not one you might have seen coming. But it's been created for them by their geographical proximity. They're, they're merely being faithful to what is in front of them. This is both a huge barrier, but also a major possibility in our neighboring. Our ability to open our lives and imaginations to strange friendships of people who are unlike us. To do so, though, uh, like Mandy's um, uh, hope for her community, requires quite a bit of imagination but it also requires some skill and then a lot of trust. The imagination is linked to understanding like the similarities and the context. Understanding there's more that we're alike than that we're different, even if we present very differently from each other. This is what drew Paul to an odd prayer meeting where a strict pharisaical Jew wouldn't have felt very comfortable, but in a pagan city, this might be a decent place to find someone who's at least open enough to pray to something outside of themselves. So he goes to this prayer meeting. This is why Lydia was referred to as a worshiper of God, maybe lowercase g at that point. Many of us know these kind of spiritual but not religious types in our neighborhoods, right? And then Paul's skill, so he had an imagination, but he also had a skill, and this was knowing his context. And kind of in the spirit of improv, like he kept saying yes long enough to keep the scene going and let the Lord open her heart to respond to Paul's message, is what it says. And then his trust, so he had imagination, he had skill, and he had trust, and that was demonstrated in his ability to enter into her world. 
and to receive her hospitality, to stay with her household, which was also affected by the ripples of Lydia's new faith in Jesus. But the story didn't end there. It's not like a happily ever after, like Paul gained a convert. That's awesome. They planted a church. They never had to worry about anything. No, in this new turf, which Paul was becoming a neighbor to Lydia in her community, he starts to be consistently and accurately heckled. Like if, if you're in a place for long enough and you don't like have a heckler, maybe you need to like up your intentionality, right? Because they're walking along and these men, or and, and this lady, uh, this female slave fortune teller starts, isn't that a great uh, business card title, right? Female slave fortune teller starts declaring loudly, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. These men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. Again, this is not an inaccurate thing that's coming out of her mouth. And I, I like to think that it might have even sounded good to Paul's ears the first time, but like the 30th time, like I think maybe he began to wonder, is she, knocking, is she mocking me? Is she making a spectacle? Is this from God? Willie Jennings comments on this. And he says, it's no accident that she's drawn to these disciples because the enslaved are often drawn to those who are religious, either as an echoing sign of their own enslavement deepening further the power of that captivity or as a hopeful possibility for emancipation. She knows when she finds these guys, they're either going to um, drive her deeper into her slavery or potentially free her from that slavery. So Paul cast the spirit out of this woman, and with it the money her trade might have made her boss, or maybe it's more accurate to call him her pimp. Um, and then... They wanted Paul to be arrested for, quote, throwing the city into an uproar. You see, Paul is such a good neighbor like five lines ago, and now he's messing everything up, and they want to throw him in prison. It seems that Paul's neighboring strategy has rubbed up against some pretty serious problems. Usually oppression first is tied in a pretty tight knot between spiritual realities and physical and financial ones. The demonic and economic are bound together tightly. And second, these things don't like to be messed with, and Paul is messing with it. Think about the time that Jesus encountered the Gerasene demoniac in Mark's Gospel. Do you remember that story in Mark 5? He, he comes to this place where this man is relegated for years upon years to hanging out in a graveyard and inflicting quite a bit of self-harm. And he's sitting there after Jesus gets done with him and he's clothed and in, in his right mind. All at the low expense of 2,000 swine that, le that were embodied by the legion and cast over the mountain. This doesn't make the, the pig herder very happy. They want Jesus out of there. Consider how slow our institutions, like from the United States government on down to businesses and educational institutions and even churches are to like cast out powers and principalities if it's going to mess with things or if it's going to mess with the bottom line. We let things like racism and white supremacy and xenophobia and sexual abuse hang around so long because it might mess with things. Chris Hewitt's and Christine Pohl um, talk about this a little in their book. It's a really awesome little book called Friendship at the Margins. And they say, B 
being friends with Jesus, which I think is all of our goal here, being friends with Jesus and with those who are poor requires us that we give up being friends with the world. And that's what you're seeing in Paul. That's what you saw in Jesus. Being friends with Jesus, with God in incarnate, means giving up being friends with the world, and there's a lot of consequences and disruptions and, and things happening around that. So Paul and Silas wind up stripped and beaten and in prison, and they're singing hymns to God. It's a good reminder that singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual psalms, like spirit songs, doesn't really ever require a pitch pipe or like a guitar capo. Like most of the times you sing these things in dark places at trying times. They're singing in a prison cell to God. Paul e. Murray says, hope is a song in a weary throat. And so they're singing from weary throats, apparently echoes and reverberates so loud that it causes an earthquake to rattle open their prison cell and to awake the jailer in charge who's so frightened that he'll be executed for letting the prisoners out that he threatens to off himself. <laughs> Notice how their neighboring then shifts to him. And Paul and Silas are still there. And maybe eating a cake that says we're here, right? Um, the lights cut back on and the jailer asked, moved and impressed, <laughs> sirs, what must I do to be rescued? What must I do to be saved? And they say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, not just you, but your whole household, your whole oikos. And the jailer welcomed them because the good news is good news for both sides of the prison cell. It's release for captives, but it's also release for captors. And the jailer welcomed them and washed their wounds. And then Paul and Silas welcomed the jailer and his whole household and baptized them, washing their wounds. And that night they went from being opponents on opposite side of, a prison, of prison bars to brothers in Christ on opposite sides of a table of fellowship. Chalk this one up to another strange friendship. Like, can you guys imagine this? Um, like, th this is a cool story, and it's two, mil two millennia old, and it's in a different place, but, like, can you imagine this happening in our Durham County Jail? Um, like, right next to the D-Pack down there, you, you can see it. It's, it's one of our highest points on our star line, uh, of our skyline. Can you imagine something like this happening? Can you imagine being put there for being a neighbor, for telling the truth? You can see that God was working in Philippi, that God would continue to work in this church community in Philippi. We even have proof. We have Paul writing letters to this maturing church that is still suffering and struggling, that God's working through these budding strange friendships. These are the building blocks of these friendships is that there's no one too important or too lonely not to befriend in the good news. And that the place where you are is a place which already features people you might stake your whole life on, even and especially amidst of great difference. We don't, we don't often have the imaginations to think that we might depend on someone who's really different from us. This is the story of Lydia, who was in that Roman colony of Philippi and had become somewhat of a young urban professional, right? She... She dyed toga's purple for the local elites who at least wanted to kind of be like elite. 
Like Rome had these really expensive purple dyes, but Philippi was kind of bougie and had like lesser dyes that were kind of red, but they looked purplish, and it was enough to fool people into thinking you were important. And Lydia tapped into that market and helped dye these togas for people for parties and, and to give them social status. But here's the interesting thing. Lydia used to be a slave, and her name gives her away because it's the name of a nearby slave colony, and the practice was normally to name slaves after where they were from because their, their names were so hard to pronounce otherwise. So given this context, there's even more contrast between Paul's successful friendship with a former slave-turned-artisan in Lydia, who we now know becomes a really important leader in the Philippian church, and that unnamed fortune-teller brought out a bondage which landed Paul and Silas in prison. You have a slave girl and a slave girl, one with a name and an identity and who has come out of bondage, and one with no identity who was also brought out of bondage. This is the problem with strange friendships is that they're really risky. They don't all end the same. They don't even have the same plot. They're not always reliable, and they don't always work. You can't always predict how they're going to go. There are, of course, ways to control people to make them less risky and more reliable, but then you've kind of left the realm of friendship. We don't have any evidence that the slave woman ever became a Christian or even connected with Paul and Silas again. As many people enslaved by such forces, her life probably got a lot worse before it got a lot better. Now she was unemployed, <laughs> at least. But Paul and Silas's presence in that community was, was as disruptive to evil as it was proactive and complementary to what already was going on. This is something you'll find as, as you dig into neighboring. This is something we're finding. That there's always this kind of push and pull, this dialectic happening for being a good neighbor, of knowing when to speak a hard word or intervene against sin and injustice and oppression, and when to submit to the agency of others and receive their hospitality, when to, when to have boundaries and when to, to kind of work without boundaries. Our ability to grow in relationships, our commitment, to be rooted in a place over a long period of time helps us discern how to navigate all of this. There's no good answers in this. There's no if A, then B, always C. This is always discernment. This is always, again, like Paul listening to the Holy Spirit, trying to understand what God's doing, trying to understand our own limitations. There's always got to be a giving and a receiving. This is never one-sided. All this takes time and intentionality and patience and practice and attention and prayer. So even as we seek to dismantle some of the, the holds of these powers and principalities in our communities, even as we seek to proclaim the good news to our neighbors, we can't ever do it from above. Paul talks about um, imitation a lot. Says, as as I see Christ and I imitate Christ, you see me and you should imitate me. But he he never does this this kind of witness to the good news, the witness of what God's doing, this embodying the gospel. He never really does it from above. He always does it from alongside or from below. He 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 sidles up to Lydia at this prayer meeting, and then becomes her friend. He. He's in a prison cell. He's literally about as low as you can get with that jailer. 
even Paul, with such a mandate to bring this gospel to these communities, continues to cast off any airs of superiority. He always gets his hands dirty. He always eats other people's food. He always works for a living. He always makes himself uncomfortable for the sake of others. For as many times as he lists all the things that he has, like his CV, his bona fides, he always casts them off and he says they're garbage, these privileges, these experiences, aside from the life that he gained when he was found by Christ, this abundant life that he lives connected in Christ. This is a shape of Paul's vocation, and it's the same, like, parabola. Now we're, we've done geography, now we're getting into math. Like, the same parabolic shape is the shape that Paul's living because he's in Christ. He, he, this is the, the shape that he hymns to the Philippian church later in this famous passage from Philippians 2, bidding them to have the same mind that's in Christ. He says, you'll be in the very nature of God like Christ, who did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You can see that Jesus empties himself and then is exalted. This is, in effect, how Jesus became our strange friend. That Jesus was in the process of seeking us out so that he might become proximate to us, that God might be near, that the kingdom is at hand. That Jesus might understand our context, that like us, he, he shared all of the things that we share, but yet was without sin. And loved us with patience and creativity. It's our friendship with God in Christ by the Spirit that we're called into this new imagination for what this world is and can be, and that we're called to participate with God in its remaking. If we want to consider how to neighbor in the good news... In the words of Michael Gorman, we must become the gospel in its fullness by participating fully in the life of God in Christ. We must become the gospel in our neighborhoods. And I know that sounds like a little heretical uh, at the outset, that we must become the gospel. We must embody this good news that we have been embraced by. And as a surprising result, like Lydia or the jailer to Paul and Silas, and Silas, our neighbors then might even become the gospel back to us. That's the crazy, like, transient power of this gospel. That we're never always the gospel to someone else, but someone might speak that good news and be that good news back to us. I want to close with a prayer from uh, Pastor Mandy in their mapping exercise. She says, and, and this is my prayer for, for all of us. Is she says, Father, remind us that you are here with us. Show us your heart for this place and give us courage to stay. Give us what we need to be faithful to your call to be here. And continue to pray. Pray with me.
God, we thank you that all that you've asked of us, you've provided to us in Christ by your spirit. Or keep giving us imaginations that bloom in this place. Uh, make us courageous and patient and attentive so we can see that all these things are already here. Fuel us and equip us um, to be the gospel in our families. That might be the hardest. In our neighborhood, to our neighbors, at our jobs. Give us open eyes and ears and hearts to receive your good news from others. Thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.